Ahoy, mateys. Welcome aboard to the Bonnie ship Prime Capsule. She'd be a fine vessel for sailing the high seas together. I'll be your captain. You can call me Redbeard, or if you have no idea what the heck is going on, I'll just be your host, Benjamin Morris. Hi, everybody. No, you're not dreaming, nor have you crossed over into the Twilight Zone. What you have done is tuned into the final episode of this season of the show, an episode that is more special than I can possibly say. As I reflect on how far we've traveled together, I can't help but be so grateful to all our guests since last fall, from hunting ghosts in Missouri, to recruiting spies in Brooklyn, to prospecting for gold in California, to studying gangs in Chicago, to chasing bootleggers in Virginia. And let us not forget, trailing Alex Murdoch through the swamps of South Carolina this spring on the heels of his conviction for murder. It has been a journey, but as we've traveled coast to coast, there's one place we haven't spent a lot of time, and that, me mateys, is the open ocean, the place where traditional notions of law, order, and justice often meet a watery grave. Luckily, our final guest of the year is here to correct exactly that oversight. Dr. Jamie Goodall is an historian currently based at the United States Army Center of Military History, and she is the author most recently of The Daring Exploits of Black Sam Bellamy from Cape Cod to the Caribbean, a brand new title just published by the History Press. Jamie is not just an expert on military history, she's an expert on pirate history. And best of all, she is a pirate herself. Who better then to take us on a tour of the lawless 18th century and to introduce us to one of the most notorious buccaneers ever to prowl these shores, Black Sam Bellamy. So keep your powder dry, me hearties, for today we set sail. Jamie, welcome to Crime Capsule. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. So I'm just going to cut right to the chase. You have the best job ever, which is that you are... (laughs) literally a pirate expert. Yes. How did you win the lottery, Jamie? Just tell us tell us straight up. How did you win? Uh, I mean, it, it was really by chance, honestly. Um, when I did my undergraduate degree, I decided I was going to go into archaeology because I wanted to be the next, you know, Indiana Jones, which, you know, looking back, a terrible idea. Um, but I herniated three discs in my back on the first week of the excavation we had to do. And I was only like 19 years old and I was like, Oh, that's a problem. Um, so I was like, I'll just stay in school and did my master's in museum studies and public history. And I did an eight week internship. It was probably one of the most boring things I had ever done in my life. And I was like, Oh no, what do I do? And one of my mentors, Dr. Phipps at App State, she said, well, what is it that you like most about history and doing history? And I was like, probably the teaching, right? Like getting to research cool stuff and then teach people. So she encouraged me to apply for PhD programs. And as part of those, you have to have a writing sample. And so one of the classes I had taken during my master's was European imperialism. And we could write about any aspect. And 
I came across this quote that basically said um, Sir Henry Morgan was England's second Drake. And I, I was struck by that and I wanted to research more. So that's what I wrote my paper on and that's what I used as my writing sample. So after getting many rejections <laughs> to PhD programs, uh, The Ohio State, um, Margaret Newell, she was like, you know, I'm really interested in working with you. And she was like, have you thought of writing about pirates for your dissertation? And I was like, uh, <laughs> I did not know that that was an option. Um, but yes. And it just kind of went from there. It's someone, It's like someone basically saying, have you ever thought about um, accepting this platter of solid gold bars that I am going to place right in <laughs> front of you? And, you know, your answer being, I, I didn't know that a person could do such a thing. But why? Yes. Yes, I think I, I shall. Yeah. Um, so you ended up, you did your PhD work at the Ohio State University. Very important. The, the, the there. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> and and your dissertation uh, formed the basis of this subject, which has then led into three books now that you have published on the topic. Yes, and a bookazine. And a what now? It's called a bookazine. Uh, National Geographic, when they do their special edition publications, they're not their magazine, but they're not quite books either. So they call them bookazines. So I wrote a National Geographic bookazine. Mind blown, Jamie. Mind <laughs> blown. Uh, learn something new every day. Well, that's very exciting. And that was on pirate history as well? It was, yeah. It was on global piracy across all time, pretty much. It is interesting that as uh, public history has had to adapt to things like new media or changing laws and regulations around sites or increased protections for offshore you know, shipwrecks and things like that, um, the the view of what it means to do, and I say this was an absolutely straight face, pirate history, uh, has, has really changed. And the idea of doing this kind of work has achieved so much more credibility and recognition in recent years. Uh, would, you, would you say that there has been a kind of uh, renaissance or resurgence in pirate studies in the last generation? I would say, yeah, for a long time, especially throughout the 80s, uh, Marcus Redeker was like the pirate historian and everyone else was just kind of studying pirates for fun. But he was like the scholar. And I think for a while through the 90s, 2000s, there wasn't really a lot going on with that. And um, I, I honestly think that the Pirates of the Caribbean movie that came out, you know, it was very early 2000s. And I think that that really sparked a renewed interest in examining who these people were and what their actions caused and, you know, trying to de-romanticize them to a degree. Um, because that's when you start to get, um, you get Mark Hanna, Kenneth J. Kinker, and he's writing about black pirates. And so, yeah, I think there's this resurgence of interest but I think part of it was a desire to debunk stereotypes and myths. Which is a major part of your work on Black Sam Bellamy, and we will get to that uh, momentarily. Now, I have to, it would be uh, uncouth, uh, ungentlemanly even, of me uh, to, to fail to recognize the fact that not only being an historian and a researcher and a member of the, I'm going to see if I can get this right, the United States Army Center of Military History. Did I get that right? You did, yes. You are also 
a pirate yourself. I am. <laughs> so, <laughs> so can you explain, matey? <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, some friends of mine, I loved going to Renaissance festivals ever since I was a kid. Um, growing up in North Carolina, I went to the one there every year. And I made some friends and they were like, come with us to the Maryland festival. And I was like, yeah, sure. And they were like, but you have to dress up because we're actually a pirate crew. And I was like, excuse me. Uh, and they, they were just <laughs> yeah. a group of people um, that would get together at the Renaissance festival almost every weekend, dress up as pirates. And they were what was called the Mare Nostrum. Of course they were. And oh, so yeah. they brought me on as ship's scholar uh, given my background. Very nice. I got to choose my pirate name and I decided to go with Torian. And it's a amalgamation. It's like a combination of my online user handles, which is typically Le Historien, which is French for the historian, and Tyrion Lannister, because I drink and I know things. Ah, very nice. So for our listeners who may not be aware, would you just give a quick gloss on Mare Nostrum? Because it is actually a very old and important term. Yes. So for me, when I was researching and I learned more about the concept of Mare Nostrum, one of the things that really struck me is that I think the reason why that term came to sort of define these limits uh, of the known world is because this is the area where piracy really begins, uh, at least from the historical records we have. The earliest records we have of pirates and attempting to deal with those pirates is from Pharaoh Amenhotep III, 14th century BCE. And he's basically saying, not only do I have to protect along the Nile Delta, but I'm dealing with all of these, he called them sea peoples, uh, which the Romans, I think, ended up adopting as their term for them as well. And it was just by virtue of the location, right? The Mediterranean, the coastline around there is so rugged in a lot of places. And it's really easy to find inlets and islets and little uh, coves and stuff to hide in. And so if you know the area very well, you can easily lay in wait for a passing merchant ship and they're not going to see you until it's too late. And then you can attack them and nobody's going to be able to chase you because they're not going to know the waters as well as you. It kind of becomes a problem. And I think we see that proliferate afterwards into other aspects. That concept, I think, is particularly useful for your definition of the regions in which Sam Bellamy was operating. You know, if you look up and down the Atlantic coast, it has some of those same features. It has uh, particularly along, say, the Outer Banks in North Carolina. You, if you don't know those waters, you're going to founder. You absolutely will founder. There's no, there's no, um, you know, ifs, ands, or buts about it. And of course, Cape Cod as well, incredibly, you know, treacherous area. And, and yet that sense of risk married with reward is what has dr drawn mariners f across the centuries, you know, to, uh, to these landscapes. Now, I want to, I want to ask you about Sam, uh, Black Sam. He is such a captivating figure in uh, American history, in imperial history, in colonial history, in pirate history. I mean, he just, you know, he sort of straddles so many different eras, uh, even in the few short years that we <laughs> really know, uh, you know, about his movements. Um, and our sharp-eared Crime Capsule listeners may remember 
that a couple of years ago before uh, we were uh, before we became a podcast, we actually ran an article about Kathleen Brunel's book from the History Press on Maria Hallett, which is, you know, particularly interesting. She does a lot of the same work that you do, kind of diving into the fact and the folklore as to who were, you know, these people, what can we know. You write in your book, Jamie, that there is still a major uh, amount of sifting to be done based on um, Sam's origins, where he came from, whose, whose child really was he? <laughs> We're still kind of debating that. So we, we'll, we'll come to his major exploits in a bit, but at least for, to, to start, take us to the mists of time to where we are kind of blindly feeling our way through the fog, trying to understand where this guy came from. So we know at least that he came from England, right? He's not born in the North American colonies. And so that gives us a starting point to try to figure out where he lived and and what family he belonged to, because there are multiple Bellamy's throughout parts of what would become the United Kingdom. And uh, I believe Kenneth Kinker did this really great job of sort of trying to piece together a genealogy so to speak, of Sam Bellamy and offered multiple different explanations of who might have been his parents and therefore where he might have come from. And the best evidence we have is that he most likely came from uh, areas like Cornwall or or similar spaces where uh, he would have been coastal, would have known the waters, would have had experience with maritime matters to some degree. And uh, so that kind of narrows things a little bit uh, in terms of that's an area where there was a lot of piracy already. And so he probably got a lot of his know-how from that before he decided to immigrate to North American colonies. Um, It's really interesting, though, because depending on which group you believe his parents to be, uh, it really gives a different understanding of what his background might have been because there's differing statuses in terms of social standing between some of these different Bellamy families. And so if we were able to pinpoint specifically, if we could know for sure that this is his family, it would give us a better indication of did he grow up in an impoverished background and was he seeking his fortunes? Or did he come from money and wanted to make a name for himself as opposed to being his father's son? Exactly. To break free of middle-class expectations and the sort of the very planned out bourgeois life, which in 18th century England was, I mean, it was almost color by numbers, right? I mean, you can imagine how someone would, would see that as very confining. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we see that with uh, one of Bellamy's, uh, I guess, sort of cohort, uh, they're about the same time period, uh, Steve Bonnet. Uh, (laughs) And so it would have been, you know, if we could know Bellamy's full background, it'd be really interesting to compare their two lives and to see what paralleled. 
You know, one of the things that I thought was particularly illuminating in your account was you have a sort of extended discussion of these sea dogs that hailed from the Elizabethan era and had sort of carried forward the tradition of local sailors who, uh, though they might not have been based anywhere near the metropole, the imperial capital, London, they were every bit as skilled, if not more so in some cases, than members of the actual British Navy, right? And so the the crown, recognizing their skills, often sought to recruit from the sea dogs in various expeditions, especially against the Spanish and the French and so forth. Just can you tell us a little bit about that particular tradition, which you write was almost concentrated in uh, Cornwall? We're going to get to America just in here in a second, but I think the, the background context is really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Obviously, the sea dogs, that's not a moniker they gave to themselves. It was actually bestowed upon them by the Spanish. And it was because that point during Elizabeth's reign, they're way behind Spain (laughs) in a lot of regards, especially financially, um, because Spain gets a hundred year head start on colonization and they're bringing in literal boatloads of silver and other goods from their colonies. And so a number of these mariners who, uh, like uh, John Hawkins, they have their own maritime businesses and they try to dabble in the slave trade, um, mostly unsuccessfully at first, but that's where Elizabeth starts to see the potential is that they can infiltrate this monopoly that Spain and Portugal have on the slave trade and the wealth that it's generating, as well as using them to divert uh, attention away from the treasure ships and the colonies, because if Spain's worried about their slaving ships, right, it's going to divide Spain's attention. And this is where she starts to hire these, I mean, they're essentially private mercenaries, right? These private mariners to, you know, if they slip up a little bit and they decide, oh, I landed in Panama, let me uh, wreck this village. You know, she's kind of like, you know, that that's okay. Kind of slap on the wrist. Sorry, Spain, I'll never do it again kind of thing. <laughs> right. And what, what really happened out there? It's hard to say, you know, it was 500 you know, miles away in, and it was in a storm and maybe maybe it wasn't us after all. Like, you know, it's sort of, there's so much plausible deniability in these kind of contexts. I, I, I love the geopolitics of that. You know, it's sort of like if bad things happen to Spain at sea. Why Why should Elizabeth shed a tear, right? Yeah, and I think plausible deniability is the perfect way to contextualize that because, there. I mean, that's the reason why it was so difficult uh, early on to prosecute pirates or privateers um, because you have that geopolitical struggle and Elizabeth is able to use that plausible deniability of, well, they're not doing this on my command, Right. They're operating in their own. (laughs) It's very important to be able to do that. So what's interesting about this era is you describe kind of the the successive waves, the ages of piracy um, in in your book. And Sam Bellamy is born in the late 1600s and he is basically born into uh, he is on the cusp of the I believe the third great age of piracy, as you describe 
in the book. So there are some lost years that where we don't really know exactly where he is or what he's doing. There are some kind of plausible conjectures um, between about st- very early 1700s into about 1714, 15-ish when he starts to appear uh, in, in stateside accounts. Um, you write that he basically kind of comes out of nowhere in 1714. Maybe there'd been some military service. Maybe he had been press ganged. Who knows, you know, but he arrives, he shows up, and he is already a skilled sailor in sometimes legal, sometimes gray area-ish employ uh, right at that moment, 1714. So where, where do we first see him in the historical record? One of the first times that we see his name in the historical record is when he is looking for work, uh, when he's looking for employment, when he reaches uh, what would have been um, Massachusetts, the, the Massachusetts colony, Boston specifically. But, but we don't really know much at that point until we start to look into records of his associates, right? Um, Paul's grave Williams. If we look at his records, we can see little re- references here and there to a man named Sam or Bellamy. Um, and I think one of the first major experiences that he has is trying to put together an expedition to basically raid this Spanish treasure fleet wreck that um, everybody's flocking to. And so that's kind of he does he just kind of shows up in the records. We don't have much if anything before that and it makes it difficult, right, to discern where he was, uh, what he was doing, what experiences he was having that brought him to that point. Three AM the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the Matrix, cult leaders, missing 411, night marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian devil worship, and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls Find the best stories and expand the circle in the process. 3 a.m., the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go. In this moment, when he first becomes visible um, in, in the record, Everybody is swarming to this particular treasure trove. I mean, there are thousands upon thousands of uh, pieces of eight, pieces of silver. Uh, I don't remember if there's gold or not, but I remember the silver. You know, it's sort of, they're late to the game. But it's so funny because you you write, he's bringing the skills. He's got the know-how. He's got the, quote unquote, the street smarts. But he has to recruit somebody who can actually pay for the trip. And right. this this particular trip doesn't go quite the way that they had thought. But what is interesting is that it proves the strength of the partnership and it proves at least the viability, his capacity to lead an expedition by himself, to pilot a ship, to, com- to captain a ship. Yeah. 
And it's really interesting because his experiences, uh, his attempt to fish the wreck of the Spanish at that point, as you mentioned, didn't go very well. They did not succeed in their endeavors. But in addition to proving his sort of maritime abilities, it opens him up to meeting key officials, or not officials, key leaders, if you will, of the pirate community at this point. Um, and had it not been for his foray to that wreck, um, it is unlikely he would have, at least at that time, met with those very important pirates. And those individuals are the ones who are helping him get better <laughs> at being a pirate. So I want to ask you about pirate politics here in a second. But before we do that, we do need to just to a quick bit of groundwork for our listeners who may not be aware of who Maria Hallett was. And, you know, so when, when we meet Sam, there's this pivotal moment in the whole narrative where he's based in Wellfleet, something happens in Wellfleet, he starts heading south to the Caribbean with the intent of returning to Wellfleet. Take us to that exact moment, which really propels his narrative forward. When Bellamy arrives to Wellfleet, uh, he is allegedly drinking in a tavern. And there's a bunch of different stories about how this began. But one of my favorite versions was that he was sitting in this tavern by himself, kind of back in a corner, and he happens to look out a window and see this beautiful young woman that is just probably the most stunning being he's ever seen. And he just has to go and meet her. And when he does, it turns out her name is Maria Hallett. Now, the interesting thing is, does she exist in the way we believed in this sort of narrative that she does? But the name exists, but does that person <laughs> exist? If you, you know what I'm saying? But regardless, um, he and Maria have this beautiful courtship, but the problem is he is this penniless sailor and she's from a sort of middling means family closer to the upper crust. And she could her pick of men because she is so beautiful. And she knows her father will never let her marry this, you know, downtrodden man. So they have this secret illicit affair. Um, it should be noted that by all estimates, Sam Bellamy is in his 20s, and she is quite young, probably 14, 15. <laughs> right, <laughs> like, right, very right. interesting. But the story goes that they consummate their love before he leaves to go make his fortune so that he can come back and prove to her father that he is worthy of his daughter's hand in marriage and that he is a world-class gentleman. And so off he goes on his exploits. Uh, unknownst to Bellamy, in his absence, it turns out that that consummation led to Consequences. the creation of a child. <laughs> right. And so here is Maria, a young, unwed, pregnant girl. And what ensues from there varies depending on who you talk to. Uh, Brunel's work was very influential in my understanding of these various different narratives. And so that meeting allegedly is what 
was the catalyst to Bellamy's entire piratical career, right? That he goes to try to make his fortune. He'll do that. He'll come back and live this fabulous life. You know, the the love of a good woman has driven many a man to do uh, far far fewer things. So it's you know to to think <laughs> to think that it launched uh, you know one ship, if if not a thousand ships, as in the Trojan War, is not that much of a stretch to believe. I do have to ask you though. I mean, historians work their bread and butter is sources, right? And sources are key to. Um, to basically every version of the story that we have. Of course, with Maria and Sam, we have multiple overlapping versions, as you write in the book. And I just wanted to ask you, can you describe for us what it was like as you were doing the research on this and you were sifting through the multiple accounts? I mean, you're you're basically working with kind of degrees of plausibility, but you're also kind of having to come down and say, there are certain things that we will never be able to know. So can you just can you just give it a, a sense of the sources on on this pivotal moment because they are so important. As you know, writing about pirates very difficult because pirates did not typically leave records behind. Getting back to that plausible deniability, you don't want to have like it's like in Harry Potter Dumbledore's army, like you don't want to have a list right, of right, people right. like, hey, we're pirates. Today, you know, this morning, January first, seventeen eighteen, I got up and I raided Barbados. <laughs> you know, yeah, you just right. don't <laughs> That would be a problem. And so researching Bellamy in and of himself is difficult because not only are there a few records about pirates, but there's few records about him specifically. And then with Maria, the difficulty is in the fact that more often than not, at this point, women are not showing up in a lot of the records that remain available. You know, they're not saving most women's wills because they typically don't have one unless they're super wealthy. Women's journals were not considered important, but yet, you know, you can have men writing about birds and like, oh, I saw a squirrel today and that's, you know, monumental to history. <laughs> so those are kind of the, the issues is that if the records ever existed, they were either poorly preserved and therefore didn't survive, or they were just destroyed. We see that happen a lot. And depending on where records are kept, especially if you think of the Caribbean, even to a degree in Massachusetts, the, the weather conditions, if you are storing stuff in not so secure facilities, a monsoon or hurricane or whatever, you're probably going to lose everything. <laughs> or even just in, with the passage of time, humid salt air, right, does yeah. terrible things to, to ancient paper. It does. <laughs> it does. So, you know, we're, we're kind of fighting, fighting a rear guard action here, trying to save, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, so with this in mind, what is interesting, you know, we have this kind of dearth of sources early on, but what is very interesting about the the next sequence in your book is that we transition quite quickly into a period when Bellamy goes south, he goes down to the Caribbean, he's traveling around the West Indies, and he's his, he really begins his life as a pirate and, and is quite successful at it in many ways. Uh, what is interesting is that the sources actually start to get a little better because he is 
capturing uh, British, Spanish, you know, colonial ships. And some of those individuals later are having to give testimony about what they experienced when he when he has captured them or plundered, you know, their 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 sloop or whatever it might be. And, and I was really struck, Jamie, as I was reading your account that you know you go from citing multiple overlapping levels of folklore, which is kind of the best of our knowledge on the early parts of his life, to legal dep- depositions, right? And it's suddenly suddenly this this picture begins to emerge that we we didn't have of you know the previous few years. So tell us, tell us what he's doing down there. And and then, you know, once we've got a sense of that, tell us, tell us how we know what he's doing down there. So basically for Blemmy, as I mentioned, he gets into sort of the, the leading crowd of pirates. He's uh, becomes part like of uh, Benjamin Hornigold's, I don't want to say crew, but like fleet um he meets blackbeard right he's meeting all of these really important individuals and in doing so he's learning from them best routes best times to uh travel when to not travel where to avoid right so he's learning all this which they have sort of learned trial by fire he's just able to absorb this and, um, you know, he, he does, he ultimately ends up becoming quite successful in his ability to captain this ship and to know, know when to hold him and know when to fold, you know, yeah, like yeah, he knows when to, to attack, when not to attack. And that's not something all pirates are good at. He's, I mean, he's got his own, his own share of, uh, sort of broken and reforged loyalties. I mean, like not all of his relationships are perfectly smooth, of course. Um, but I mean this in, in the film, um, version of Bellamy's life, this would be like when you have the athletes training montage, you know, right. And there's that like little (laughs) three to five minute thing of them, like lacing up their shoes and hitting the running track or Rocky, Rocky punching the, the, the slabs of beef, you know, in the, uh, in the ice house, (laughs) you know, this is, this is Sam Bellamy's training montage, isn't it? This period in his life. Essentially. Yeah. He's wheeling and dealing and he's able to kind of make a name for himself, not just among these other pirates, but the Spanish start to know his name. And the reason why we know the names of men like Bellamy, Blackbeard, Hornigold is because they were good at what they were doing, but they got caught. If pirates aren't getting caught, probably don't know who they are. <laughs> and so um, by making a name for himself, he sort of puts himself on a path towards potential destruction right it might be self-sabotage almost uh in that he's too good for his own good he is identifying the productive routes there's a couple of instances in which he he starts out on one ship the marianne he he seizes another ship upgrades trades it in you know says i think i that one over there looks quite nice i'll take that you know and much to of course the displeasure of of that ship's captain <laughs> um he, you know he is he's actually treating it is interesting he's not a he's not kind of a slash and burn type pirate at all in many cases he treats 
you know, the captain and the crew of whoever, whoever ship he's just seized with some decency releases them or gives them even one of his lesser ships to to sail on with you know he doesn't leave them to their fate on a desert desert island um is that is that typical of pirates in his day or was he kind of an exception i wouldn't say that bellamy's actions were necessarily typical um because he is at least in the records portrayed as sort of self-demeaning and very like cordial and and respectful um but i will say that this you know pirates were yes absolutely brutal in many cases bloodthirsty murderers but that typically was happening during land raids which we don't typically think about as being piracy because it's happening on land but you know uh henry morgan's sack of portobello and those are like really terrible, violent situations. But out on the open water, it's not that they don't want to be violent necessarily, but is that it may not do you very much good to have a violent reputation because if you have a reputation of just slaughtering everyone on board when you attack a ship, they're, the people on board that ship are going to be like, well, I'm going to die anyway, so I'm going to die fighting. And you're going to lose your own people, right? There, there's going to be issues. Whereas if you have a reputation for being tough but reasonable, people are more likely to immediately surrender if they believe that they're going to be saved or spared, Right. Um, so it's a really interesting dynamic of you want to instill enough fear, right, that people um, take you seriously, but you don't want to instill so much fear that they're willing to die fighting. That is fascinating. <laughs> that is absolutely fascinating, that balance. I mean, you want to talk about, you know, threading a needle in in, in the world of pirate politics i mean what what a compelling challenge that must have been i mean m- my instinct was to think okay if you if you are so good at what you do and you start to amass quite literally a, a fleet of your own which by the end of his career uh, bellamy more or less had a small handful of ships but but imagine if you you know have uh, half a dozen or 10 or even you know 12 or 15 ships under your command, you know, that presents its own problems, right? First of all, you have to provision them. You have to retrofit them and repair them as time goes on. And, and, you know, that all gets very expensive. You have to pay the crew and, you know, this sorts of thing. But, but what you've also done, if you have gotten too big for your britches, is you have started to, you know, attract the full attention of either the Royal Navy uh, in this particular case, or other privateers, you know, who are looking to pick your lesser ships off one by one. So it's really interesting, you know, you write that it's kind of better to be in the middle of the pack than the biggest dog <laughs> right. of all. I mean, if you think about it, um, Blackbeard trying to be at the top of his game, like he's out there scaring people with smoke coming out of his beard. Did that work for him? For Yeah, I mean, people were scared to death. <laughs> of him, even though we have no record of him actually killing anybody. Interesting. But it also puts him on everyone's radar 
and he basically puts a price on his head, right? Um, because we do have at this time what are essentially bounty hunters. There are people out there who are skilled mariners who are willing to dedicate their time and their resources to apprehend pirates on behalf of the Royal Navy so that the Royal Navy can focus on larger scale conflicts, right? Because there's a lot of war <laughs> happening during this period. And so, yeah, if you are sort of at that top level, people are going to be looking for you. Whereas if you're kind of middle of the road, you can blend in a little bit better. So let's pick up a thread from a few moments ago, because I think it is really important here. You know, when you do have uh, ships being apprehended, when you do have the Royal Navy um, intervening, when when it's required, um, you do occasionally get, uh, say, the Royal Navy takes a ship and they and they seize some of the crew. They take these depositions, right? There are these sort of formal accounts uh, that are given by the prisoners. Um, who maybe if they were forced into their piracy, they're given a little bit of leeway, maybe they're unrepented, and so they're going to, you know, have to pay, um, you know, do their time in, in, in the brig, you know, so to speak. But uh, either way, frequently you have this kind of formal account given of where a former pirate had sailed, who he was sailing with, what the demeanor of of the captain, the pirate captain was like, and so forth, which ports they raided, which, you know, flags they were flying under. And and frankly, Jamie, this is just the most interesting thing that I've ever you know, encountered. It's sort of like, you know, here you have these firsthand accounts. Maybe they're not all completely trustworthy. Maybe there's some, you know, some sifting that the historian has to do there too. But can you tell us, you know, where where are these formal accounts of former pirates who are having to, you know, swear under oath, this is what they did and, and, and so forth. Are they kept in sort of Naval college archives? Are they kept in, uh, are they in Greenwich, you know, in outside of London? Are they, uh, of course, this is still under, you know, um, America's not independent yet. So it's still, you know, the colonies. So, you know, it's all Imperial. Where where do we get these? How valuable are they? Tell us about these sources. Piracy at, at this point uh, was just fascinating to most people, right? On the one hand, they you know they've gotten to a point where they hate them. They're disrupting trade and lives and everything, but it's still captivating to learn about. And so publishers and printers have capitalized on this. And a lot of times, what they'll do is they'll take all of the trial material um, that the courts, the admiralty courts have collected, and they will publish them in bound volumes. Many of them are in the National Archives in the UK, but the Library of Congress actually has quite a collection of um, pirate trial documents. And a lot of these have been digitized at this point, which is really cool. It's by virtue of public sort of demand at the time that we are able to more readily access these kinds of court records, right? Because I feel like most court proceedings, probably not that exciting, right? Like my neighbor stole my pig and, you know, then I threw mud at him. I now, did you take us to a day in the life of, of 
uh, of a researcher here. I mean, were you sort of trawling through these on the Library of Congress, you know, sort of resources website? Did you actually go to Washington and spend time um, with the the hard the hardbound volumes? How did you engage these particular sources? For this particular book, a lot of the work that I did was digital because COVID. Um, it really impacted the ability for researchers to go to the National Archives, to go to the Library of Congress. Um, they were booking appointments, you know, months and months and months in advance. So in order to, to stick my publishing deadline, I was fortunate that a lot of these materials are available digitally. And so that's largely what I did with this particular project. But I have... Uh, in many cases, done research at the UK National Archives, uh, kind of diving into colonial office records and stuff like that. Admiralty court records are also there, uh, which, you know, you can easily access at the archives. So, uh, you know, such a hardship studying pirates sometimes. I had to spend a week in Bermuda oh, no. at the Bermuda National Archives. I, I was forced to spend a week in oh, Jamaica. You, you poor thing. You know, doing... I know it was, it was really, really tough, but <laughs> yeah. Are you okay? Do you need to talk? I mean, I mean, therapy might be yeah. on the horizon. Yeah. Right? <laughs> maybe, maybe you need some aversion therapy, which is to go back to that traumatic place and, yeah, and absolutely. relive it all over again. Yeah. What about, what about the American Naval College? Do we have any records on, on this topic? They do have some Admiralty records, uh, but a lot of, the stuff that the Naval College and, and the sort of military archives we have here in the States, uh, they tend to deal more in later records, uh, typically revolutionary period forward, um, because so much of the stuff prior was already being sent to the UK um, for storage. Yeah. Makes sense. So... So here you are, you're, you're kind of combing through, you know, this, this, incredible primary source material. Um, again, day in the life of a researcher, are you looking for mentions of Sam Bellamy's name? Are you tracing, um, you know, his crewmates and kind of where they are being picked up? What are, what are your hits? What are your kind of keywords that you're looking for as you're trying to, you know, basically turn the clock back 300 years? It can be challenging just because 17th and 18th century records, there's not a lot of um, consistency uh, in spelling and writing. There's no clear standardization quite yet. So when I'm searching these uh, documents, I'm having to keep an eye for, uh, like if I am looking for the word pirate, I can't just look for the way we spell it today, P-I-R-E-T-E. I also have to look for P-Y-R-A-T or, uh, you know, variations of that. And in a lot of cases, I don't just search for the word pirate because even the contemporaries of the pirates at that time would interchangeably use words like corsair, buccaneer, privateer, even though all of those have very specific and distinct contexts. And so I try to look for names, which can be difficult because again, issues with spelling, but also there were pirates who had 
aliases. I mean, Henry Avery spelled his name like five different ways and he had an alias named Bridgman. And so like you, you have to kind of read closely if you're looking for those sorts of things. Now, if you're looking just for piracy writ broadly, it's a little bit easier because all you have to do is look for sort of the letters from colonial governors or correspondences between them and the board of trade and plantations because that deals with a lot of their experiences with you know being trade a maritime trade so it's easy to kind of come through those just for a broad brush budding pirate historians take note you have just received a master class in how to conduct this kind of research from one of the very best Before she gives away all her secrets, however, we're going to take a short break and pick back up with the rest of our interview right here next week. Thanks so much for listening, Mimates. Our guest has been Jamie Goodall, author of The Daring Exploits of Black Sam Bellamy from Cape Cod to the Caribbean, published by the History Press. To order a copy, visit arcadiapublishing.com or your local independent bookstore. Join us next week as we continue our journey round the Caribbean with Jamie and Black Sam. See you then. Thanks as always to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael DeLoya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and a signature title of the Killer Podcasts Network. You can find Crime Capsule wherever you listen to podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcasts.com. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download American Vigilante now.